Please open your Bibles to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. We have four gospels inside of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of Luke is actually part one of a two-part saga that is known as Luke and Acts. Last week, we were in the book of Acts. I began my sermon from the very beginning of the book of Acts, and this week, I will begin my sermon from the very beginning of the book of Luke. We will be doing a topical study this morning as we continue this sermon series that I have uh, presented to the church for this Advent, bringing the facts of the Christmas story. That said, in my last sermon, I introduced to you this series for Advent that plays on the popular neologism, fake news. We are living in a hyper-divided culture, socio-politically, with two sides that fling fake news, that phrase, at one another. That's fake news. No, you're fake news. No, you're fake news. No, you're fake news. And while many are entrenched in their various tribes, scores of others just want to know what the truth is. Anecdotally, it seems that a day doesn't pass without me hearing about fake news or seeing folks in social media going hard on stuff and accusing others of fake news or seeing friends coming out of Facebook jail or YouTube jail or whatever. Um, with the socio-political mudslinging in our culture and with Advent upon us, I wanted to sort of riff on this fake news phenomenon because inevitably every December the media on both sides of the divides will say crazy stuff about Christmas. There's a lot of fake news every Christmas about Christmas. And so I'm offering this sermon series entailing some of the common claims, some of the fake news around Christmas, and we'll be bringing some factual news in response in this series, I am looking not just at the cultural claims that are, are made around Christmas, but some of the fake news that even Christians themselves have, have, have welcomed into their homes and their churches around the birth of Christ. And so we'll be talking about some of the outside sort of, you know, folks who attack, uh, you know, around the holidays. So, you know, it'll be a Time magazine cover or something saying something crazy or you know, some article on some website or whatever is going around, but also some of our internal, like, hey, let's correct some of our own fake news that we have within. So in, in this series, we'll be doing both, and uh, in this sermon this morning, I want to consider the cultural or perhaps the cultic claim that the Christmas tree, get this, the Christmas tree that probably a lot of you have in your homes, the Christmas tree is bad. So I want to talk about the Christmas tree this morning. Additionally, I want to look at what often sits on top of Christmas trees, those adorable Tinkerbell-looking angels in our culture. So that said, the title of today's message is Trees and Tinkerbells. Um, by way of introduction, let's consider what we covered in our last session. In my last sermon, we looked at the fake news around the claim of Christ and Christmas that all of it is just a big pagan photocopy. And so the first point on your outline by way of review and introduction is pagan duplicates. People claim that, you know, Jesus didn't exist. They, they claim that, you know, these, these sort of uncreative Jewish people, you know, plotted a new religion, and, uh, and rather than making up one on their own, they just found all this pagan stuff from their oppressors and decided to copy it and, you know, managed to peddle it around the whole world. Uh, the, the most fringe among, among this sort of uh, these skeptics will even say that, you know, Jesus wasn't a historical fi figure, he didn't exist. Others among them will say he existed, but, you know, sort of these early Jewish followers just 
you know, blinged him out and, and took all this pagan stuff and, you know, mixed it up to fool the whole world uh, with this whole Christmas thing. Now, I've asked you to turn to the Gospel of Luke so that you can see the contrast of, of these claims, and, and you can see it just in terms of the primary sources. So as, a, a, as, as we, 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 of course, turn to this as Scripture, but, but for sake of the skeptics, we, we might say, as a piece of history, as a primary source from the first century, forget about you know, these, these claims being made on, on YouTube by you know, some, some guy in his, in his in his mom's basement or whatever, uh, you know, let's just go to the primary source and let's see how they're presented. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in a consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things of which you have been taught. Notice that the account itself, if we're just dealing with primary sources here, the account itself isn't setting it up like a myth. Once upon a time, many moons ago. You know, it's not, there's, it, 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 it doesn't have the marks of the genre of mythology. It, it has the marks of a historical account. It sets itself up as a historical account. It was written in the lifetime of eyewitnesses. It, 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 it begins with the mentioning of eyewitnesses. It begins with the mentioning of Theophilus. These are real people in real time. If you want to make up a myth, we know historically that it takes generations to be removed from the historical event in order to accomplish it. You can't do it in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Like if someone wanted to say during the 92 riots, uh, you know, UFOs flew over uh, Crenshaw and Manchester or whatever. I was, you know, I was there. Like I lived through it. You're going to have to wait till Matt Jones dies for a whole generation to die, even my kids to die because they've heard me tell stories about that particular event. That's how myths work. We know this historically. We know this forensically. You have to wait till the original audience was gone and then you spin it. But this is an account that was written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Further, this is an account that was written by those who actually died for what they wrote. There was no incentive for them to lie about this. People lie to get ahead. People lie to get benefit. This is the psychology. This is the science of it. You lie about things that you don't have to impress people. You, you, you lie about stuff to get ahead. You, you, you might... Uh, you know, pad out your, your resume in order to get a job that you want. You lie in order to benefit yourself. You don't lie to get yourself killed. These men suffered for what they wrote. These men suffered for writing this history. People will say things like, well, history is written by the winners. No, 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 no. They suffered for hundreds of years. Christians were, were persecuted and murdered and executed in the most violent of ways. This is not a myth. This is a primary source written by one who suffered, who got nothing out of it, who wrote it in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Draw your eyes to verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiah, and, and he had a wife and daughters, Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Real people, real names, uh, real politicians. Herod the Great ruled from 37 to 4 B.C. So, so again, you, you, when you're writing, and, and if you're trying to pass a myth or you're trying to lie, 
you don't mention real people. You don't mention exact locations and exact names and stuff like that. Like if you, if you want to lie, uh, not that I'm trying to teach you how to lie here. For Pete's sake, I have some of my kids in the room. But, you know, when I was trying to lie to my dad as a rebellious teenager, it's like, hey, where are you going? Out, you know. Uh, where were you, you know, with some friends? You know, I'm not like I was with Mario and Dewan and CJ because then he could call their moms, you know. So, so he's naming names. He's setting it up. Like, this is not the marks of someone lying. This isn't the marks of mythology. He's giving you dates. He's giving you people and the rest. And, and along with this, in terms of primary sources, we have thousands of manuscripts to back up the history of this account. It blows the water out on this whole fake news claim that Jesus was not a historical figure, or this idea that he was just remixed by pagan myths. Inevitably, though, these claims come up every Christmas, and you know, as the great anonymous poet once said, haters gonna hate, and so I want to equip you for engaging folks around the holidays. There have been many major Hollywood movies that have been made to promote this fake news. I think of the Da Vinci Code, and. Tom Hanks running around as a detective discovering that Jesus isn't really God in the flesh who died and rose and ascended to heaven. Uh, and actually, Jesus is this dude who's sexually active and runs off to Europe with his girlfriend and starts having babies, and that's the bloodline and the Holy Grail and all this goofy stuff. Fake news. If you want to go deeper on this, I recommend to you a book that's written by an actual scholar, Dr. Daryl Bach, Breaking the Da Vinci Code. But uh, uh, alas, you know, you have these myths that are being spread today by people who are not actual scholars and historians. Uh, the Da Vinci Code was based on the book by Dan Brown, who's, who's neither a scholar or a historian. He's got this runaway Jesus and, you know, these pagan myths and whatever, and Constantine and, you know, Christianity sort of made up hundreds of years later. More recently, there was a series of films called The Zeitgeist that peddled the pagan claim that Jesus was just a copycat from the Egyptian god Horus. They, they weren't the first nor the last to make this claim. Around the same time, we had the lovely Bill Mars film, uh, Religulos, that came out and also copied this idea. They will boldly claim all these parables, that Jesus was a fictitious character that made up, you know, that was made up as sort of, you know, to sort of get pagans to, to, to follow after him, so they just used pagan stuff. And, you know, the pagans have these myths about virgin births and disciples and rising from the dead, and that's what Christianity is. No, that's fake news. When you look up those pagan mythologies and you compare them with the historical Jesus, you see that these are not copies. They actually have very little, if anything, in common. I referenced some of these in last week's message, like Horus, who allegedly was born of a virgin, had 12 disciples, and was crucified. But when you look up the primary sources, that's just not true. It's fake news to cast dispersion on Christians and their faith around the holiday. The claim that Horus was a virgin uh, like Christmas, it's just not true. His parents were actually fertility gods. They were very sexually active, and that's how he came about in, in their pagan religion. Another popular one was Mithra, a pagan god of Iranian origin who's very popular in Roman culture. He was not born from a virgin. People will say that, but he wasn't. Look at the primary source. He wasn't even born of a woman. He came out of a rock. He was born out of a rock. He emerged butt naked out of a rock as a full-grown youth with a dagger in one hand and a torch in the other. That is not the Christ child that we celebrate at heaven. He didn't have a dagger or a torch, and he was a baby. I, I, this, and he didn't come out of a rock. This is crazy. Skeptics will say this, and they'll say, well, well you, you guys celebrate Christmas in December. They'll say, well, you know, the pagan festival of Saturnalia was celebrated in December, and 
the pagan sun god Saturn they were celebrating in December. And so you Christians, you guys just copied that. And in fact, the pagans decorated trees and they lit candles on the trees and they, they sang house to house, kind of like caroling. And they, they had meals and, and they gave gifts. And so, so you guys just copied that. No, fake news, fake news. I'm calling it fake news. Like the pagan god virgin birth claim, when you actually look up the primary sources, you see that Christmas and pagan holidays, Saturnalia, etc., they just don't compare. In the case of Saturnalia, Saturnalia received human sacrifice. We don't do that. We don't do that. They, they celebrated with orgies. They, they, yeah, they sang house to house, and they would sing in the nude. Oh, yeah, they gave gifts, but their gifts weren't nice. They were actually mean-spirited. It was more like a kind of trick-or-treat sort of a thing. They're not the same when you compare the primary sources. You have a primary source in front of you. You can read it and compare it to these other primary sources. They're apples and oranges. Further, Saturnalia wasn't celebrated on the 25th. Uh, further, lots of pagans did stuff in the winter. That doesn't prove anything. Here's the thing. Humans eating food, singing songs, lighting candles, decorating stuff, and giving presents, that's not pagan. That's human. That's what humans do. Humans do that all around the world. Likewise, having celebrations in the winter isn't pagan. That's just human. Humans celebrate stuff around seasons. And we live on a planet that's, you know, rotating and spinning, and we got different seasons. And so all throughout the cultures of the world, people are like, hey, it's going to be warm. Let's celebrate. Hey, it's going to be cold. Let's do some stuff. That's just a human thing. And again, Saturnalia wasn't celebrated on December the 25th. Now, skeptics who are caught in online echo chambers of, you know, videos and podcasts and whatever about fake news Christmas, they, they're just caught in those echo, echo chambers, and so they're still going to keep pressing. And they'll say, well, what about the pagan celebration, Natalis, Solis, and Victi? That was celebrated on December the 25th, and it's celebrated to the sun god. Don't you guys celebrate the sun on December 25th? Okay, hold up. Wait. <laughs> okay, S-O-N and S-U-N are different things, right? Sun's on Earth. And a big old star, the sun in space, are totally different things. Okay, so, so let, hold on. And added, the earliest mention of the outer space sun god's birthday was in 354 A.D. Okay, now uh, th that comes much later than our, our earliest accounts of Christian celebrations. We, we have reference to Christmas on December the 25th, way before 354 we have reference to it in Hippolytus of Rome, as I quoted last week, in 204. And I quote from this primary source, for the first advent of our Lord in the flesh when he was born in Bethlehem was December the 25th, end quote. Further, we know from the historian Sextus Julius Africanus, who was born in the 100s, he, he, he wrote a five-volume history of the world, and in it he wrote that Christ was born in December. At least, he, you know, that people at the time, in the 100s, they believed that Christ was born in December. So if anyone's copying anything, it would be the pagans hundreds of years later that developed these customs. We have much earlier writers from the 100s saying these things. And I like Sextus Julius Africanus in particular because one of the other fake news that gets peddled a lot is that Christianity is a white man's religion. Christianity is just European paganism and whatever. You go, no, Sextus Julius, let me emphasize here, Africanus was an African. And the fact of history is that Christian uh, uh, faith was deeper in Africa and Asia and the Middle East before it was ever in Europe. Sextus had ties to Agbar of Edessa, who was also born in the 100s, who was an Arab king of Osirene, who became a believer in Jesus around 200. 
and he declared Christianity as the official religion of the city. Get that. Long before Europeans had state churches, Mesopotamia had a state church. Arabs were worshiping Jesus. Asians, Africans, they were Christians. Brown and black faith before, you know, this whole idea, oh, this is a white man's religion, or it was copied from the pagans or whatever. The fake news, it's just fake news. I'm calling the bluff on it. Now, here's the thing about Christmas. While we have early references to it being celebrated on December the 25th, the fact of the matter is we have other primary sources that show there wasn't a consensus among all Christians. In fact, to this day, the Eastern Orthodox Church and its various denominations, Greek, Russian, Coptic, and so on and so forth, they celebrate on January the 6th. Other scholars have uh, other dates around various other uh, historical data points, and some have proposed that in the Western calendar, Christmas was celebrated in December, not as a copy of pagan myths, but as a contextualization for bringing the message of Christmas to pagan culture. Last week in my sermon, we explored the missiological practice of Christians from looking in the book of Acts and from looking in the writings of the Apostle Paul of, of being in secular culture, being in pagan culture even, and using ideas or images or quoting their poets as the Apostle Paul did as we saw last week, using their imagery as the Apostle Paul did last week when he was uh, in Mars Hill and he, 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 he took the, 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 the statue of the unknown God and he used that to make a point and quoted their poets and stuff like this. How sometimes Christians throughout history, and this is a fine thing to do, will contextualize their faith. So there are some historians who think that perhaps the birth of Christ moved in history around this time as a part of contextualizing in order to bear witness in, in the culture while these other things were going on. But this is far different from copying. Contextualizing and copying are totally different things. If Christians decided to celebrate in December because in Europe that was a popular month in that culture, that does not matter. What matters is that Christ is celebrated. What matters is that Christ is worshipped. When it comes to Christmas, the thing is, ancients didn't actually really care about getting the exact date. Uh, in fact, in their culture, in ancient Jewish culture, it, it wasn't a thing. Uh, you know, and, and this is often a surprise if you've only grown up in one culture, if you haven't uh, traveled outside of the country and whatnot. There are cultures where they don't celebrate birthdays. It's kind of lame, but, you know, uh, our culture does. We make a big deal out of birthdays. And so, you know, in our culture, we want to make a big deal out of our Lord's birthday, right? Because we like birthdays. But in other cultures, they didn't do this. In ancient Jewish culture, that wasn't a thing. Your bar mitzvah was a big deal. You know, that, that was a big deal, but your birthday wasn't so much. Their culture just didn't do that. And so ancient followers of Jesus, the birthday wasn't the big deal. The resurrection was the big deal. Now, the incarnation is required to celebrate the resurrection, and so we commemorate this, and the history of the church has, has always thought of and celebrated the incarnation. That isn't something that we do one time a year. For Pete's sake, we do it every day of the year. At least we ought to. It's something that we celebrate every Sunday. You will always hear me talking about the incarnate Lord when you come on a Sunday morning. It, that is important to us. Dating and whatnot, that's not, the ancients didn't really care about that. What mattered was the truth that God the Father sent the Son to become a man. That the Son was the incarnated uh, 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 revelation of the triune God. Specifically, the Son who beheld the face of the Father and walked in the power of the Spirit, that God had entered human history in the flesh. Christmas celebrates this reality, the birth of the eternal Son. Let me say it again, the birth of the eternal Son. Now again, to the outside ear, you know, haters are going to hate. They might hear something like, the birth of the eternal. How is the eternal born? Isn't that a contradiction? I mean, what is born has beginning. 
a B-Day. What is eternal doesn't have a beginning, let alone an end. So what do you mean the birth of the eternal? Now let me explain. Yes, this is true, but here's the thing about Christmas. Here's the thing about our faith. We worship this God who's triune. Christians worship a God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons. The persons are eternal, for they are the one God. Not, not just the one God, but the only God. The only creator, the only sustainer of everyone and everything. He made the world. He made humanity. Sadly, humanity rebelled against him. Humanity sinned against their creator. Sin and rebellion against the giver of life brought death to humanity and, and the creation itself, which is decaying. Science tells us that the universe is running out of use, usable energy, which will eventually die in a universal heat death, all of the cosmos. In fact, all things are in a state of decaying. Regarding humanity and its decay, 10 out of 10 people die. And here's why 10 out of 10 people die. Because 10 out of 10 people sin. The wages of sin is death. We've all rebelled against God and his will, so we die. And beyond death, we face judgment for what we have done, and this is a frightening reality. And here's where the Christmas story comes. Long ago, God sovereignly and graciously chose an unworthy man, Abram, to, to make a redeemed people for himself through him who would rescue the earth from death. And, and God made Abram, Abraham, and, and Abraham had many children, and, and those children were, were given promises by God. And those children were given this great inheritance from God. And those children were given this ultimate promise that God would bring salvation through them. And to them, God sent the Christ child who is the eternal son. And in his human life, he lived a life that we did not. He was literally the perfect man, free from sin, free from guilt, free from dysfunction that you and I all know free from darkness, free from despair, free from regret, free from ruin. And he gives his life for you. How can he be eternal and he can be born? Because he is God and man. As a man, he has a birthday. As God, he has no beginning and he has no end. And at Christmas, we celebrate that the eternal son has entered into human history. Not just any old history but the history of redemption through God's people, Israel. And that has been extended to the nations of the world. And so you have this faith being celebrated all around the world. We celebrate him. We gather as a church to worship him. And yeah, we decorate our homes. We decorate our worship centers as a part of that celebration, which brings me to the next point on the outline. The first fake news that I want to address for the day, all of that was just background. You're like, wow, that was quite the introduction. Well, let's just get on this whole you know, pagan Christmas trees thing. So we move from pagan duplicates to pine de decoration. Uh, the fake news is not limited to outside skeptics on this one. You'll find people sometimes even inside of the church, or at least people who claim to be Christians, in particular certain cults, who obviously aren't inside of the church, but they think they are a real church. But in any case, you'll find some cults uh, claiming that, you know, you shouldn't have decorations up. While most in North America today don't see this as a big deal, historically it was. Hey, we just finished celebrating Thanksgiving, right? Uh, and so the conversation about our nation's founding is still a little fresh on our minds. Early European uh, uh, immigrants and colonialists who come to North America uh, and they get over here. Okay, uh, if you know your history about North America, the, the early pilgrims, in particular the Puritans, they, they actually resisted the celebration of, of Christmas. They thought Christmas was a thing that, that Christians shouldn't do. Early pilgrims and Puritans were actually largely against it. The folks on the Mayflower would have had Thanksgiving, but they wouldn't have Christmas. 
Now, there's myths of Mayflower Christmas that developed in the 1900s, but that was just fake news. In fact, there was a law that was adopted in the general court of Massachusetts in the 1650s that required that those who celebrated Christmas would be punished with a fine of a five-shilling uh, you know, fine. You've got to pay five shillings if you get caught with a tree. They, uh, this went on from the, uh, the 1600s all the way up to the eight, 1850s when Christmas celebrations were made legal in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It wasn't until 1870 under uh, President Ulysses S. Grant that it was actually made a national holiday. So you're know, like, oh, what's the deal here? Well, the English Puritans were concerned about the Reformation, and the Reformation was about reforming the church. And they were concerned about traditions that had developed in Europe that were bogging down the preaching of the gospel. What I just preached to you about the triune God who has come and lift your guilt and your shame. If you come to him and seek his forgiveness, like, that's what they were concerned about. And they were worried that a lot of these traditions were getting in the way of, of these things. They were worried, in particular, coming from Europe, there was a lot of drinking and gaming and lawlessness that, 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 that had developed around the celebration of Christmas. And the, the church was so watered down and walked away from the gospel. And as they were establishing new colonies, they said, we don't want any of that. We want to preach Christ, and we want to be focused on the right thing. They were concerned about the baggage of state churches in Europe and compromising the gospel. Now, going back to what we discussed about contextualization in the last sermon, I shared with you that there's different ways that we engage in the culture. We reject what is true, what is terrible. We receive what is true. We reassess what is tolerable. We redeem what is trampled. We, we have these responses when you're engaging culture. Can, can I receive it? Is this, is this a good thing? Or is this something I should just outright reject? Uh, you know, I, I think I used the example of prostitution. We don't have Christian prostitution or Christian strip clubs or Christian crack or whatever. We reject those. Now, uh, oh, here's a cup of coffee. Is it Christian coffee? Uh, no, you can just receive it. There's, you know, there's nothing innately bad with a cup of coffee or whatever, or a painting or something like this. And we reassess what might be tolerable, certain things in the culture that maybe we haven't analyzed in a while that we might have to revisit and kind of go, hey, let's think about this. You know, and good Christians might draw different conclusions on this, and, and, and that could be you know, drawn on certain biases or just being indifferent to something, and that's fine. And we redeem what is trampled. That is to say, things in the culture that are broken or incomplete that we want to we take and we want to rescue. We want to we make new. So while we don't have Christian crack, we have Christian drug rehab programs. While we don't have uh, you know, Christian strippers or whatever, we have programs to get men and women out of those industries and to rescue them from harm in that way. Now, in the case of Christmas and pilgrims, they felt a need at that time to reject because the culture had so much baggage in celebrating things. That said, not all felt that way. Some saw it as an opportunity to redeem what was trampled and to take some of the customs from their motherlands and redeem those things. So, for example, colonies like Jamestown, they recognized Christmas, whereas New Plymouth, that was a Grinch town. So, you know, some, some colonies were into it, others weren't. And a lot of the differences on those were over culture, politics, and ethnicity. Surprise, surprise. We still have a lot of differences around those things today, too. So the English, uh, you know, a, a lot of them, they had problems with it, whereas the Dutch and the Irish and the Germans, they, they were much more open to it. Speaking of Germans, uh, the historians write about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he lit candles and put them on trees. He was all about it. He liked the decorations. Now, all of this to say, the history of Christmas trees, pine decorations, greenery, it's a bit of a complex history. Yes, in ancient cultures, there were folks who decorated their homes with plants and 
trees and whatnot, and some even did that inside of December. So what? So what? It is a logical fallacy of false analogy. The fact that different cultures do some of the same things like decorating their homes or washing their hands or taking a bath or wearing sandals or singing songs, it doesn't prove that one came from another. These are just things that humans universally do. We decorate things. We celebrate things. We do it around seasons. Uh, of course, you know, anyone making a big deal out of this is, is trying to create a conspiracy where it ought not to be. You could study the history of, of birthday cakes and putting candles on them. Guess what? Pagans did that. Okay? So when your, your, your five-year-old has his birthday and you have a cake with some candles on it, blows them out, you're not blowing evil spirits or, you know, subjecting him to paganism. Oh, man, Obi's a pagan on his fifth birthday. You know, what are they doing? You know, that's, we, we have taken that custom and we've redeemed that custom because the pagans don't have the, the claim on cakes and candles. Humans can have cakes and candles. It's just fine. Now, to be clear, we ought to, we, we, we ought to have an issue we ought not to have an issue, rather, with a person having a personal conviction. So someone says, well, you know what? Like, I'm just not comfortable with birthday cakes or whatever. Oh, okay, cool. I'll, I'll eat it for you. Or, you know, I, I'm not comfortable with these Christmas trees and decorating and stuff or whatever. You know, okay, cool. Like, maybe you grew up in some Wiccan cult where, like, they were using greenery to worship, you know, weird goddesses or whatever. And you're like, I'm uncomfortable with it. Oh, that's, that's totally fine. I support you in that. I mentioned in the sermon last week that I'm not concerned about paganism for our people. I'm concerned more about consumerism and greed and, and other things. And so someone might say, you know what, we're not going to have a Christmas tree this year because I'm just worried that, you know, my kids, my kids, the holiday of my kids, my kids aren't thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about PlayStations and they're thinking about other stuff. So we're not doing a tree. That's fine for people to have personal convictions and say, we're going to do this a little different or whatever. What I'm getting at are when the critics are coming and they're attacking the church and they're attacking your faith and they're making up these bogus claims. But in this treatment of fake news, I'm not picking on personal conscience. I'm picking on deconstructing those who distort history and scripture to go Grinch on believers. Now, speaking of distorting scripture, let me take you to the Grinch hermeneutic, the attack that is so often used by Christian cults and others who want to go after your Christmas trees. I'll just put it in front of you so you can keep Luke open because I want to come back to Luke. Here it is, Jeremiah chapter 10. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed as the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain. For, the, for one cutteth a tree out of the forest, and the work of the hands of the workmen with an axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. See, that's, you went to Home Depot, you cut down a tree, you fastened it, with that little thing at the bottom, right? And, and then you decorated it. Jeremiah says, don't do this. Uh, cults like the Jehovah Witnesses, French fundamentalist groups, they love to cite this one. Now, again, if you don't want to have a tree, I'm not trying to say have a tree because for Pete's sake, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt have a tree or whatever. All that I'm saying is this passage has absolutely nothing to do with that. Off the bat, notice that it says nothing about decorating a tree in one's home. This is actually not about decoration. It's about denunciation. Specifically, the prophet Jeremiah denounces the cutting down of a tree and carving it into an idol. That's what the text is getting at. In fact, if you keep reading, I'll put the context in front of you. By the time you, you keep moving through the chapter and you get to verses 14 and 15, it says, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false. 
There is no breath in them. They are worthless. They're a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. So people cut down trees, and they don't take it home and decorate it. They take the tree, and they chop it up, and they use the wood to carve little, little, little idols out of them. And they take those little idols, and they melt down gold and silver, and they, they put it on top, and they, they decorate it. The word deck is yapa. It means to adorn or to make beautiful. They use the silver and the gold on this piece of wood that they have, that they have uh, made into a little figurine that represents one of their gods or goddesses. And they decorate it with gold, put some paint on it or whatever. And they go, ooh, you know. And then, and then they take a nail and they fasten it down so it doesn't fall over. Because that was a big deal in pagan culture. You know, if, like you think about Dagon in the Old Testament. He falls over the fish god. And that was kind of a big deal. So they fasten them down so they don't fall over. And they bow down and worship these little figurines made out of wood that they decorated with various metals and paint and whatnot. Th these are figurines. They're not Christmas trees. Besides, Jeremiah is 500 years before Jesus. This had nothing to do with tinsel on trees, garland, lights, or if you're those people who do the popcorn thing. It has nothing to do with any of that. The Home Depot lots are not selling pagan figurines. My goodness. Now, there's a similar passage that folks like to go to that is found in Isaiah 44, and it's the same thing. It's not about decorating. It's about denunciation of people who cut down trees and use the wood for making little figurines of their gods. They, they're bowing down before them. They're praying to them. They're trusting them. They would have little figurines that they carry in their pocket. Archaeologists have unearthed these. If you go to the museum in, uh, in, in London, the British Museum, there's just cases of these. If you go to Israel, to the Israel Museum, just cases of these, of these little idols, these little figurines that they make. They're sort of like, uh, I don't know, uh, rabbit's tails or charms or good luck or whatever. But they, they would pray to them. It, it was false worship. There is no breath in them, the prophet says. They're not alive. And, of course, for the Jewish people, this is one of the big Ten Commandments. You're not to have graven images. You're not, you're not to have idols. So here's the bottom line. There's nothing in the Bible that condemns decorating trees around Christian holidays. So if you want to have a tree, knock yourself out. If you want to have a tree at Easter, have two trees once a year. You can do whatever you want. There's, there's not a command against it. So if there was a believer who was uncomfortable, and they said they want to forego it or they want to fast it because they're worried about consumerism, or maybe they did come from a pagan background where they were using greenery for weird stuff. They, ah, you know, it's just, I got too many bad memories with trees and decorations. That, that's fine. Or, or the principle that we saw in the, in the book of Acts with uh, Romans and Corinthians last week about meat that was sacrificed to pagan idols and whether or not it was okay for Christians to eat that in the early church. And the apostles deliberated and said, hey, it's fine. You know, they, the, they sacrifice animals to, to these pagan altars or whatever, and they take the meat and they put it in their routes and their Trader Joe's and whatnot. So if you're just eating that meat, as long as you're not involved in that goofy pagan stuff, that's, that's fine. I also shared with you last week that there, there could be instances for, for missions, like our beloved Marlon and Helena, that we've sent, uh, you know, into the world in a rather hostile place. If they try to pop up a Christmas tree, uh, <laughs> it's probably not going to go probably not going to go over. Your, you know, your cover has been spoiled. So, you know, you probably don't have a tree. It's not a big deal because the Bible didn't command it. If the Bible commands it, then we do it. If the Bible commands it, then we fight for it. Uh, we, we saw this in 2020 and 2021. If the government says wear a mask, whatever, uh, the government says don't preach Jesus, all right, I'm going to jail. You know, I'm going to jail. You can't preach Jesus. You can't sing to Jesus. Well, I'm sorry. I, I have a higher authority over me that has commanded me to do so. Now, in America, I shared with you that Christmas has a weird history. Some of the, the Puritans and 
you know, the early ones, they, they navigated those. We're in a different context today, but we still need to analyze our culture and navigate those. But speaking of trees, did you know that President Franklin Pierce um, was the very first to have the Christmas tree in the White House? That was in the mid-1850s. It actually wasn't until 1923 under President Calvin Coolidge that we had the first national Christmas tree lighting ceremony on the White House lawn. So that just goes back to the 1920s. Recently, we saw President Biden announced by rapper LL Cool J. Biden had no idea who he was. It was pretty funny. Uh, lighting the national Christmas tree. Uh, you know, and you go, oh, you know, but we might have a tendency to think, oh, we've been doing that since, you know, the Mayflower. No, you, you need to study your history and know your primary sources. Now, let me transition to the second item of fake news. It's what's on top of the trees. And we've been talking about trees and outsider claims. Let me talk about the holiday elephant in the room. Not the white elephant, that funny game that you play with your friends, but another elephant in the room, meaning the, the problems that, that folks see and sort of they don't want to talk about or address or change what I have on your outline to keep my alliteration going. Uh, we've talked about pagan duplicates, pine decorations. Now let's talk about pixie dames. Now I mean dames not in the pejorative sense, but in British culture a dame is a title that is given to a woman of a, of a high rank. Uh, a, a pixie, of course, is a supernatural folklore of these human-like winged creatures. Think of Peter Pan and Tinkerbell, hence my title this morning, Trees and Tinkerbells. Now in our culture, angels are portrayed as what? Broadly in our culture, what do angels look like? They look like white ladies with wings. That, that's what they look like. When I, when I go to the store, you know, you'll see some African-American ladies with wings, too, depending on where your Home Depot is located. Uh, but you know, they look like pretty ladies with wings. Uh, the imagery, of course, comes from European folklore. It was very common in New Age religions. And New Age has crept all throughout our culture. And it has even managed to creep into the church on this particular imagery you'll find inside of churches. Church plays, you'll, you'll see this sort of thing. Many consumer mega churches, the Walmart worship centers, as I call them, will feature them around December. I think of the old uh, Chris, uh, Crystal Cathedral. Maybe some of you who are LA locals, you went to the, uh, the Crystal Cathedral. They had donkeys and camels. They went all out for that thing. And white ladies on wires, you know, coming into the room, flying around their sanctuary. Now, now the thing is, while angels may be popular during uh, Christmas for Christians, they are popular all year long for the New Age movement, which has impacted our culture. And this is exactly what they look like in the New Age movement. In our culture, we have angel boutiques, angel newsletters, magazines, angel seminars. There's college-level courses on angels, angel t-shirts, calendars, postcards, websites, sunglasses, jewelry. There's an angel Broadway play. Moreover, according to Publishers Weekly, at one time, at one time in our culture, uh, just before 2000, five of the ten best-selling paperback books in our culture were on angels. Angels everywhere. Now, now why? I, as I said a moment ago, I think they're everywhere because the New Age is everywhere in our culture. And because of this, we might grow numb to it. And we might think, you know, we see the pretty lady with wings or whatever. And we don't think twice about it. Or maybe you see the little fat babies with wings, you know, those cute little fat babies with wings. And you just go, oh, whatever, you know, fat babies with wings, you know. Yeah, sounds good to me. You got a fat babies with wings. Now, bottom line, people love angels in our culture. And this stems from the entanglement of North American culture with the New Age. Angels in the New Age and in our culture are not the angels in the Bible. Hopefully, you still have your Bible open to Luke. Let's check out how the angels of Christmas are described, and let's compare them to these little fat babies with wings and pretty ladies with wings. Luke chapter 1, draw your eyes at the text of verse 26. 
Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descent of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Notice what he says. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Why does he say that? Because he's scary. Notice that he is a he. Notice the masculine pronoun. Angels are, in a technical sense, with regard to biology, neither male nor female. They don't have, uh, you know, the anatomy of a male or female. They don't have, you know, genitalia. Uh, because they belong to a different order of being. They're spirit beings. Now, now still, spirits have, have gender. And so they're referred to as he. When, uh, you know, when you, when you die and you're absent from your body, you know, dudes, you don't stop being a dude. Dames, you don't stop being a dame. You know, even though you don't have a body, you don't have your genitalia and whatnot, you're still a he when you die and you await the resurrection. So spirits have gender. These angels are said to be he's all throughout the Bible. Angels are, are always referenced with masculine pronouns and male attributes. As to their outward appearance, it is evident that they take on human form. They could be mistaken for men. You see that in Ezekiel 9.2. Genesis 18, 2, and 16. Some classes of angels, such as cherubim and, and seraphim, are represented as wings, like Exodus 25, 20, Isaiah 6, 2. Winged uh, creatures that we see inside of Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 6, Revelation 4, 8. So they, they, they also can have the appearance of men. Some angels inside of the, the scripture have the appearances of kind of animal-like characteristics, but they're, they're always masculine. Every reference to angels inside of the scriptures is in the masculine gender. The word for angel in the New Testament, angelos, is the masculine form. In fact, the feminine form of angelos doesn't exist. There are three genders in grammar. The masculine, he, him, his. The feminine, she, her, hers. And the neuter, it's it. Now, of course, in our, our culture, we're up to like 100 genders and all kinds of goofball stuff or whatever. But uh, the fact of biology and the fact of scripture, this is what it is. Angels are never referred to as any other gender as masculine. Uh, th that's it. And the guys can't, you can't have transgender angels or whatever. They're, they're, they're guys, and that's just the way that it is. That's how God made them. In many appearances of angels in the Bible, never is an angel referred to as a it or a she. Uh, furthermore, when angels appear, they're always, they're, they always appear as men. It's just very clear. The angels in Revelation are spoken of as he. They have possessions. They're always his. They're never pixie ladies. Now, this isn't a chauvinistic thing. Not, not picking on you know, the sisters in the house or whatever. Because, hey, after all, the devil is a fallen angel, and he's a he. He's said to be the father of lies. Father, that's masculine, John 8, 44. So this isn't like some mochismo thing. Heck, the demons are he's too. So, you know, guys don't be like, yeah, yeah, guys, they're angels. <laughs> like, the devils are too. So that's not a big deal. Now, the idea of female angels is not, it's foreign to Judaism. It's foreign to Christianity. It comes from paganism, the new age, the occult. Unlike the Christmas tree, the, the, this imagery is actually straight from a pagan source. Humans in different cultures decorate trees in their homes and do stuff like this, but this comes straight from a pagan source. They are portrayed in paganism as self-glorifying, attractive. They're drawing attention to themselves, whereas biblical angels aren't, aren't, aren't doing that. They're drawing attention to God. But the popularity and the attraction, why is our culture so attracted to the New Age angels? Well, they're not scary for, for the beginning. 
they, they don't have to tell you, do not be afraid, like we saw in Luke. They're not scary. They're, they're sexy, and our culture likes sex. Further, they're not holy. They're, the, the New Age angels are more human. They're flawed. One reason cited for the angel popularity in our culture and New Age literature is that the angels actually offer people a spirituality that doesn't involve a commitment to God or his laws, obedience, and these sorts of things. Sophie Burnham, who's the author of the book, A, a Book of Angels, I don't recommend the book, but in the book, believes that the current popularity of angels is, and I quote, because we have created the concept of God as punitive, jealous, and judgmental, end quote. It goes on to say, while angels, quote, never are, they are utterly compassionate. Whoa. That's the popularity. As, as Time Magazine put it, for those who choke too easily on God and his rules, angels are a handy compromise. All the fluff and the rang and the kind and they're non-judgmental, and they are always available to everyone like aspirin, end quote. That's why our culture likes them. That's why our culture likes them. They're there to enable the culture to remain the way that they are. Whereas the angels of Scripture join with the prophets of old of calling humanity to repent from sin, to cry out to the true God, to seek his forgiveness, to admit that you're wrong, and to admit that you need help, and to admit that you need more than help. You need life because you're dead in your soul apart from him. This is the message that the masculine, freakish, biblical angel gives to Mary here in Luke chapter 1. His name is given. It's Gabriel. That's a masculine name. In fact, the only names that are given to angels in the Bible are Gabriel and Michael. Those are both masculine names. And in the Hebrew Bible, Gabriel appears in the book of Daniel as a revelator, a messenger, and a great warrior. Of course he's afraid. He's a freaky spirit being who's the warrior from days of old. Draw your eyes at Luke chapter 2, verse 31. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, you will bear a son, you shall, name, you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the, the, the Son of the Most High. And, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Excuse me, I was reading from chapter 1 there. Uh, you realize you're like, where's that? So, we're going to get into two in a second. I got ahead of myself. The angel brings the news of the king and his kingdom. This scene is powerful. This scene is powerful. Tinkerbells don't, don't capture this. They, they just don't capture this. Okay, now go to Luke chapter 2. Okay? Luke chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to see some more angels appear. Let's compare them to the new age angels in our culture. In the same region, Luke 2, 8. There were some shepherds, they were staying out in the fields, they are keeping watch the flock by night, and the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were laughing. No, they, they were terribly frightened, the text says. They're scared to death. They're terribly frightened. I, 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 do, I don't want to, I don't want to see an angel. I'm not, you know, I'm cool. If God was, if God like spoke and was like, you want to see Gabriel? No, I'm good. I'm so, <laughs> I'm good. I don't, I'm good. I don't, I don't. I don't want, nope, I don't. I, they probably have PTSD from seeing these angels for the rest of their lives. These shepherds need counseling. This rocked them. And the angel says, verse 10, don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Again, you see the fear. They're shaking in their boots or their, their harachis, their sandals. Uh, years back uh, in our family, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, you know, I'm a Bible guy. I'm like, hey, the Bible says it. That's what we do. You know, but, you know, and, uh, you know, seeing all these angels, hoppers, you know, at Home Depot and wherever, you know, I was like, you know what? You know what? In, in our house, we're going to have a biblical angel at 
so I took a GI Joe and I, t- I took him apart and, and Erica sewed a little sewed a little little uh, you know gown for him and and you know they're fiery in the Bible so I put some lights inside of his chest you know and he like dominates the tree <laughs> it's always a talking point when people come into the house they're like dude what, like what what is that you know why do you have snake eyes on top of your, you got G.I. Joe up there, what are you doing, you know, I'm like, well, in the Bible, see, you know, I'm trying to break it down for them or whatever, uh, he, he kind of fell apart, you know, kids, they start playing with him, the angel's got like one arm or whatever, so uh, we just get doing a star lately, but I'll probably make another one for kicks, angels are described in the Bible as fierce creatures, in Matthew chapter 28, it's the tomb of Jesus, the angel appears, and the text says, Matthew 28, 3, his appearance was like lightning, his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear, and they became like dead men. And the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Like, whenever angels talk to humans, they always say, hey, don't be scared. Let me, let me, you know, let me break this down. Let me tell you something. Same, same reaction in Daniel chapter 10 when, when the angels appear. They're warriors. They're, they're, they're scary. They might say, okay, Pastor Matt, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Okay, final point on your outline, practice the doctrine. There's so much confusion over angels in our culture. You know, people will say, I, you know, fortunately, one of the parts of the job as a pastor, you do a lot of funerals, and inevitably at a funeral, you're going to get someone, you know, during the open mic time, he got his wings, you know, you're like, wait, your dead uncle became an angel? <laughs> like, what? No, you don't get wings. He's a human. What are you talking about? A lot of the angels in Scripture don't even have wings. What, like, what are you talking? There's so much confusion around this. And so by way of practice, I'm trying to bring some clarity this morning for the church. The reformer John Calvin once said that there was so much error in angelology dealing with angels apart from the biblical witness. This is precisely what has happened in our culture on a popular level today. The best-selling books on angels, they're New Age stuff, and Christians haven't paid attention to that. And so, you know, you might have some weird angels in your home. It might be time to kind of, you know, go get you a G.I. Joe or whatever, or just a star. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the Apostle Paul, here's why it matters. The Apostle Paul warned us, 2 Corinthians 11:14 14, that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan and his hordes of demons, fallen angels, mimic, mimic angels of light. And they have sinister purposes to get people off track. The Apostle Paul explicitly warned about accepting a gospel in Galatians 1, 6 through 8. He warned about accepting a gospel from, from angels, even. Not just men, but angels. We, we, we live in a world that isn't just material. There is a spiritual world, and so, so this stuff matters. It's of no coincidence that the great cults in our, our culture are founded not just by men, but alleged angels. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, said that an angel named Moroni came to him and gave him the golden plates that were the Book of Mormon. Uh, Muhammad claimed that he received revelations con- uh, that contained the Quran directly from an angel, Gabriel. I would submit these are what Paul was warning about in 2 Corinthians 11, 14, that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Many other religions I, I could name, and we don't have time, but, but there, you know, a, a man meets an angel, and the angel tells him, hey, that God's not God. He is the true God, and that's how it goes. We have to be careful about things in our culture, going to what, what we said. There's things we reject. There's things we receive. There's things we reassess, and there's things that we redeem. So, so I'm not going to redeem a new age angel. We're just not going to do it. I might redeem, you know, chuck the one out and get the G.I. Joe or whatever, try and do something. But, but it's important to be aware of this. We live in a spiritual world. There is a spiritual war that is raging all around us right now. There's, there, you know, there, there's probably angels in the room right now. 
vying for, vying for and protecting God's people. That's, that's what they do. And there's fallen angels that, that attack and, and invade and, 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 and want to stop people from hearing this message that, that we're preaching from this pulpit every Sunday. They want to stop that. They want you to mishear something. The Oxford professor, C.S. Lewis, he said, and I quote, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Okay, There's sort of the hyper ones and then sort of the, you know, just deny. No, this is real. So we want to ponder this. Look at the text, verse 11. The angel said, for today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. True angels herald the Christ. That's what angels did throughout the life of Christ. Let me show you this just so you can see a snapshot of the ministry of angels in the lifetime of Jesus. They announced his birth. They instructed Joseph. They announced to the shepherds. They announced to Joseph. They, they came to Christ at the time of his temptation. They, they ministered to Christ in Gethsemane. They, the, the ministry of the angels at Christ's empty tomb, at Christ's ascension, the ministry of angels in heaven magnifying Christ, we read about in Revelation 5, the, the ministry of angels uh, that, that we read about of John and about Christ in Revelation uh, 1.1 and 22.16, the angelic ministry at the rapture of believers, which we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the angelic ministry of the angels that we read about at the second coming. The angels were all involved in the ministry of Jesus, these powerful warrior figures. Draw your eyes at Luke, back in the text, verse 13, chapter 2. Suddenly there appeared an angel and a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Here you see the gospel message. That, that humanity has fallen. Humanity is at odds with God. But peace comes to those with whom God gives favor. He gives his pleasure to. He gives his grace to. And the, and the heavens are glorified in this act of the born to you a savior who comes to save who comes who comes to rescue humanity angels were 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 drawing men into worship those tinker bells and those fat little baby winged you know turkey looking things those aren't drawing you into worship if they if they are you know it's that you got a different god behind it the angels in his presence if they're tinker bells then their god is like peter pan these angels are mighty and powerful and fierce and majestic. That says something about the God in whose presence they are. He's glorious, the text of Luke tells us. He's, he's powerful. All glory belongs to him. Look at the angels as they appeared to the prophet Isaiah in the year of King Uzziah's death. He, he, he says that he sees God. Look at Isaiah 6 right here. And the train of his robe filling the temple. And the seraphim, these are angels that stood above him. With six wings, they're covering their face. They're covering their feet. And they're, they're flying. They have to cover themselves in the presence of God because God is a consuming fire. And the angels are crying out to him in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. That's not a tinkerbell. And the foundations of the earth, verse 4, are trembling and shaking at his voice. And the temple is filling with smoke. This is intimidating. This is what the shepherds saw. Think about that. Think about that. Isaiah sees them in heaven. Those angels came from heaven to the earth, smoke and shaking and power. This is why they were scared. This is why Mary was scared. This is why Joseph was scared. This is why they were afraid. And notice Isaiah himself is afraid. Verse 5, I said, whoa, whoa is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. 
My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The power of God, the power of those angels reminds you you are weak, that, that, that you can't run into God's courtroom and demand anything of him. He, he's God. And that's what those angels command. That's what they command. They tell you, who's on the throne? Look at these creatures around the throne. And what will God do? Shepherds shake, and Mary shakes, and Joseph shakes, and Isaiah shakes. What will God do? Then I saw one of the seraphim who flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sins are forgiven. What will God do? God will provide atonement from his altar to those who are ruined, to those who cry out woe, to those who are unclean. He will by his fire purify those who will cry out to him, woe is me, I am ruined. I am unclean. He will cleanse you. That's what God will do. That's what we celebrate in this cup that is before us. We celebrate what God has taken from his altar. This time, not a coal, but this time his own son. The father sent the son to come to cleanse us, to touch our, our mouth, to, to, to come and have relationship with us, to, to be face to face with us, to purify us as you take the bread and hold it in your hand, you're reminded that the eternal son had a birthday. He had a body. Let's eat and remember his body that was, that was made for us and broken for us. In the cup, you have a symbol of blood. No blood, no life. You need blood to live. Blood is given in sacrifice to acknowledge that one is unclean. As we drink the cup, we acknowledge that we are unclean, that we deserve to be emptied out, but that he himself shed his own blood for us so that he might take our iniquities away and our sins be forgiven. Let's drink the cup. Brothers and sisters, this is not fake news. This is good news. This is the only good news that there is. This is the good news that has come from the king on high. That all who hear me, all who hear this word, all who see this here today, your sins are forgiven in Christ. If you come to him and you acknowledge, you acknowledge that he alone is God and that you've transgressed him, he's so good, he's so patient, he's so loving, he's so kind, he will forgive you trees and tinkerbells and all these you know kind of goofy things that will swirl around us around the holidays and people want to hey what about your trees and what about this don't 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 let that detract from the real reason for the season of what God has done of what God is doing and what God will do when he returns let's pray and let's sing to him church father we thank you for sending your son we thank you that you have given us your truth Lord, it's easy at times to maybe look at the secular culture and its conspiracies and goofy attacks against the faith. And Lord, it's easy to do that and to forget that that's where we would be, but by your grace. We would be in the darkness, hurling insults and attacking your church and you and, and, and your work. But Lord, you saw fit to rescue us, to open our eyes to see true news, to see the good news. So, Lord, we pray for your mercy upon those we love. 
the prodigals in our families that have run from you, uh, Lord, for, for those around us that don't know you, Lord, that you would be equipping us as we're learning these things to be able to thoughtfully engage those around us. And Lord, not just in terms of our witness, but also in terms of our holiness, uh, Lord, to help us to navigate the things that maybe we've received, but we should have rejected, or things that we rejected that maybe we should have received, uh, things, things that still need to be redeemed, the broken things around us, the things that we might need to reassess, maybe bridges we burned or, or people we hurt over something that, that ultimately didn't matter and was just a difference of opinion. Lord, give us wisdom. Sanctify us. Help us, Lord. We want to follow after you and be disciples who, who, who reflect you and all that you have done for us. We want to be worshipers, Lord, not just disciples, but worshipers. And so we come now to offer these songs as we close our service. Receive these songs of worship, we pray. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Would you sing songs?